Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Last night, we had a great prayer meeting here, and uh, we were joking that the men out, outnumbered the women. Thank you, Joel. Appreciate that. The, the men outnumbered the women, and uh, that's, that's a great trend to have. I used to always tell the ladies, thanks for inviting me to this women's prayer meeting. So now we're having, we were teasing them. They're coming to the men's prayer meeting. And a great time last night, and uh, there was just tremendous victory in the air. We got out and found out that Governor Reynolds had asked church, or uh, asked crowds of not more than 250 people to meet. And uh, so that, that meant that we can't meet as a church like we normally do. And uh, I know that, you know, this... There's, there's some people think, well, you know, where's our faith? You know, we, we, we believe in healing. And hey, I do. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not living in fear uh, of this situation. But we want to honor our governor. And not simply because she's a believer. Our, we have a governor who's a, uh, a solid believer. And I appreciate that. But we're honoring her because she is our authority. And, uh, you know, it's not like the government is saying you cannot preach the gospel. They weren't saying that. They were just saying they don't want us to gather right now. And, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine having that, those kind of decisions to make. I, to me, I get stressed out just feeling like, oh, man, we're not going to be able to meet authority. And, uh, you know, we, when, you can't talk about boundaries without talking about the concept of authority. An authority has to do with where, where is your parameters of your rulership. And our governor has responsibility and therefore authority over our state. And so we want to honor, we want to be a blessing. We don't want to be uh, a pain to those who rule over us and are voted in to take care of us. And so uh, let's be praying for that. Also, uh, President Trump has declared this a day of prayer for our nation. And uh, so we need to be praying. We want to, we want to be, you know, get with that. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a very important thing for us to be praying for our nation all the time, for those that rule over us. But it's something significant when a president makes that decision, where he uses his position of authority and says, we're going to pray. That's a major thing. That, that carries some weight in the spirit, and so we want to cooperate with that. I want to really encourage you. Let's, as, as you go through your day, and even tonight, gather your family around, and let's pray for our nation. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord and ask God that God would visit us. Uh, I, I personally, this, you know, the, the whole coronavirus, uh, I, I don't think that this is going to come to a lot. I think that we're going we're gonna to weather this and we're going to get through this and look back and think, wow, that was, you know, thank God that, you know, it wasn't as bad as some people thought it would be. But what it does do is it does give us a window into what could happen. Uh, you know, if you've, if you've went shopping for toilet paper, you know that there's some widespread panic. I am just grateful that I have a big family. So we always have a lot of toilet paper. Glory to God. We don't even, you know, we're, we were already prepared before the rush. Uh, but you, you can see that there's people that are out there panicking and you look at what's going on and it gives you a window of what could happen. And so we need to pray for our leaders, pray for our nation and, uh, and just use wisdom. And so, uh, and there's, there's, you know, Faith and wisdom are not at odds with each other. We don't have to choose which one we're going to walk in. We need to walk in both. We walk in faith. I believe in healing. I believe I'm not, I'm not you know, concerned about something getting on me, but we also need to be wise. We live in a fallen world, and we also need to be honoring towards our leaders. And so that's the posture we're taking. And uh, so as we navigate through this, and 
I'm believing God will be back here next week, all of us together. But until then, uh, you know, you can, you can tune in. And I, I do want to thank the guys who came in last night. Uh, they've got a temporary studio set up in the nursing room, and it's pretty impressive back there. And so you may, the, the mix may be a little different in here because they're mixing it for broadcast. And I just so appreciate them coming in and pulling this off. And, and uh, we're, we're getting ready to launch on multiple platforms, not just this, you know, for this week, but from now on, and so that more people can tune in. And we do have people tune in from other nations. And so it's a fun thing. What a day we live in. So we want to want to pray for those things and, and uh, just uh, join, uh, honor our president and uh, in his call to call us to pray. So uh, if you would turn with me to Matthew 18, Matthew 18. Now here, here's the pressure for me. I know that when you are normally preaching, uh, it's hard enough to keep people's attention when they're sitting there looking at you. And now a lot of you are sitting at home. You're in your easy chair. You've got the refrigerator right there, the kids. You got your favorite TV programs that are calling on you. So I got to really be dynamic this morning. So we need to pray that God will anoint me and enable me so that people will stay engaged. So let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for technology. Lord, that your spirit can be released, your truth and your spirit can be released through technology, that people can be healed. They can encounter you through their computers, through their, their phones, through their iPads. Lord, it's an amazing thing. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, that you would speak through me to your people, that you would set people free on the very subject we're looking at. And Lord, I ask God that you would use this time to give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're looking, we've been in our, our series on, again, on emotional and relational health. And the reason we did it in that order is if you're going to have healthy relationships, you've got to have healthy emotions. You've got to be healthy because until you have a healthy me, you can't have a healthy we. Until you are healthy, you're going to, your spiritual state, your emotional state, if you are carrying baggage, it's going to infect your relationships. And so... That's why we've been talking about this. And the reason we've been talking about healthy relationships is because the fact is our relationships are the container into which God carries his kingdom. And so it's very clear in the book of Ephesians. Matter of fact, I was going to preach on this this morning, but I felt like the Lord just kind of pointed me in a little different direction during worship. And thank you so much, you guys, for leading us in worship. It was awesome. Uh, it, uh, the, the, in the book of Ephesians, it's very clear that the fullness of God is in the body. God will never, never delegate his fullness to you as an individual. Now, that may strike some of you weird. You might think, well, I don't know about that. Well, I can give you scripture for this. The fact is, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that we have each been given a measure of the gift of Christ. So there's a measure of Christ. There's a portion that God has delegated to you. And that portion that he gives to you, uh, my personal opinion is that uh, contains revelation. It contains gifting, grace for specific things, but nobody has all of it. God's not going to give all of it to any individual. He wants to keep us interconnected. He wants to keep us needing one another. Uh, you say, well, I, all I need is Jesus. Well, that isn't true because scripture is very clear. Even back in the garden where Adam would walk with God in the cool of the day, 
He was hanging out with God. He'd literally hear him coming through the trees. I don't know what that looked like, but that's an awesome thing. And yet God said it's not good that man should be alone. You say, well, he had God, but God still said you're alone. So there's, an, there's an, a dimension that we will miss, that, a dimension of need that will never be met in our relationship with God. God is only going to bring it through other believers. And so we need one another. That's why we need a church. We need to be connected with other believers. I've, you know, people post all the time on Facebook stuff about, stuff about well, I am the church. And, you know, and, and that's true. You are, but you alone are not. There's no such thing as one person being the church. It's where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. And so we need other believers. Now, I'm not, I'm not one of those pastors that say you can't do home church. I mean, if that's what God leads you to do and you have a home church, that's fine. You just better be sure that you're connected to something larger than your family because there's, there's an ingrown uh, dimension. There's a, there's a sense in which you only see what your little environment Understands Your little uh, family understands. You need other people speaking in from the outside. That's the strength of the five-fold ministry. That's why we have, we have leaders come in all the time and speak into the house because we don't want to be inbred. We want to have uh, external eyes coming in on this thing and speaking into our environment. And so if you are part of a home church, a small uh, fellowship, then have other people coming in speaking into that thing. And, uh, but you need one another. And so scripture is very clear that we, each have been given a measure of the gift of Christ. Matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 1, the last two verses of chapter 1, it says this, God hath put everything under Christ's feet, comma, for the church, comma, the fullness of him. The church is the fullness of God. The fullness of Christ is found in the church. And so we need one another. God has given you a deposit, but you need other believers to have the full picture. And God will withhold things from you that he'll give to you through other people. And so we need those relationships. It's a crucial thing. Uh, and that's why people will talk a lot about, you know, your Christian community. Uh, I think it was about a year ago I did a series on, on uh, how is your corporate relationship with God. We, we ask people, you know, about their personal relationship, but their corporate relationship is also important. Your corporate relationship is your relationship with other believers, the body of Christ. And so as we've been talking about this, I want to deal with something this morning, one of the primary strategies of the enemy to disrupt those relationships and thereby rob you of the fullness of Christ. One of the primary ways the enemy will rob you of all that God has for you is to disrupt your relationship with other believers lure you into bitterness, into unforgiveness, so that he can keep you from the treasure that other person carries. What we need from God, some, uh, often the thing that you need the most is not found in the prayer closet, but in the chair next to you in church on Sunday morning. And if you would build relationship with those people, you would begin to realize that they understand some things that you don't understand. And if you get into a relationship with them and begin to be transparent, you're going to find that they have some treasures that you need and vice versa. And in that, in that way, God ties us together and we grow up into him who is the head. Jesus burns with a passion. He's taken on the passion of his father. And the father's passion is found in Ephesians chapter 4. That he would that we would grow into him who is the head and we would have the fullness of Christ in the earth. God longs to fill the earth with his son to replace the fallen humanity with the new humanity. 
Paul told the Corinthians, he said, he rebuked him and said, you are acting like mere men. We don't have the option of saying, well, I'm only human. No, you're not. If you are a believer, you are a God, man, or woman. The, The spirit of the living does its work where everybody is doing the work of ministry. And when we have that, then we move into the fullness of God. And so we got to go together. We can't, you know, leave no man behind because everybody has something, a portion of what we need. And as we all pull together, that we begin to move into the maturity, the fullness of Christ. And one of Satan's primary strategies to keep us from the fullness of God how many of you believe that the enemy has a vested interest in keeping the fullness of God from manifesting in our region? One of the primary ways is bitterness and unforgiveness. He, want, he tries to uh, uh, disrupt our relationship. So let's look at, at Matthew chapter 18. It's a great passage. We've looked at this passage at other times, and it's just such a primary foundational passage. Uh, in this passage, in verse 21... Uh, Peter comes to the Lord and he says, it says, Then Peter came up, to, up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter's thinking, he's, he's kind of you know, stretching himself and thinking, well, I'm going to get an A today. I'm going to show the Lord how spiritual I am. And I'm going I'm to suggest maybe seven times that I should forgive. And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. Add to that the fact that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love, which is what we're to walk in, keeps no record of wrong. And you're going to lose track by, you know, at least 68. So you're just going to have to keep on forgiving God. It's, the, it's, it's a manifestation of the king. The, the word kingdom, basilea in the Greek, literally means the, the, the English word is very, it's very evident when you see it in English and you tear it apart. It's a compound word. The king's dominion, kingdom. Matter of fact, in, in Spanish, it's, uh, what is it, reino? It's the reign of the king. It's his, it's his imposing his authority. It's not a location. It's a demonstration of his right to rule. That is the kingdom of God. When we ask God's kingdom to come, we're saying, Lord, bring your authority and impose it on this situation. That's why Paul said the kingdom of God is not a matter of words but of power. The king's dominion is manifest in power coming in and disrupting this fallen world. And Jesus tells us something here about the kingdom that is very important for us to understand. That the nature of the kingdom, and therefore the nature of the king, is the kingdom hates unfinished business. God can't tolerate unfinished business. If you have unfinished business in your life, It's a phrase we use for, you know, you got some unresolved issues. God is zealous about bringing closure to those things in your life. Because the kingdom is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The Lord wants to close accounts. He wants to balance the books. He doesn't want to leave outstanding debts. He wants to resolve issues because he knows that if we don't resolve our emotional issues, we're going to have relational issues and we're going to have physical issues. We will be at dis-ease with ourselves. Our body will absorb what our soul won't resolve. 
You know, doctors will talk about psychosomatic illness. And a lot of people look at that means it's all in your head. And that's not really what it means. And what it means is that your soma, your body, it's the Greek word for flesh or the body. Uh, one of the words that's translated body. Your soma is absorbing what your psych your psyche, your soul, is not resolving. And so you end up with psychosomatic illnesses. And so we need to deal with the psyche if we're going to deal with the soma. A lot of times physical healing, we don't see movement in physical healing because people haven't resolved the issues in their soul. I, I can tell you the times where I've prayed for people and I felt the power of God touch them. I felt that they responded to a word of knowledge where, man, it was so clear. Uh, one of the ones that stands out prominently in my mind, I remember one Sunday morning, we were, it was back in about 06, there was just this healing wave that was coming through for a number of months. And uh, that morning I leaned in and I said, okay, God, who do you want to heal? I didn't ask him if he wanted to heal. I said, who do you want to heal? And I felt a pain go up my neck. And I knew that was a word of knowledge. God was sharing with me that someone had a pain in the neck. Or they were one. And uh, so they, there was, that was a joke, by the way. See, this is hard because I can't hear any laughter from the, the monitor. Yeah, see, laugh track. I'm going to have a little button up here so I can keep rolling. But uh, anyway, the, uh, I said, Lord, I said, God, it's not enough. I want someone, I, I want to pray for someone with cancer or something like that is what I said. And all of a sudden, my, one of my eyes went blind for a second. And it scared me. I thought, did I grieve the Lord? <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I could see again and I knew it's a word of knowledge God was telling me that I don't remember if it was the left eye or the right eye so I got up excited and man I had great faith because what the Lord reveals he's going to heal and I said there's someone here with you know there's blindness in your one of your eyes or and uh it was like there was just a little periphery vision and lo and behold a woman I had known for many years was visiting that morning she raised her hand and said that's me came forward and man I felt faith I laid hands on her put my hand on her head and there was nothing no movement I said check your eye it's still blind I prayed again I bound it I loosed it I rebuked it I, you know, and, and I just felt faith and there was no movement she still couldn't see and as I interviewed her, my faith began to diminish. And uh, so I did what every great man of God would do. I said, hey, Leanne, come pray for her. And I went to pray for someone else. And just as I stepped away, really, not every great man of God would do that. I should have kept it in the pocket. Okay. That was a joke again. Laugh track. It, uh, but as I began to walk away from her, the Lord spoke to me and said, ask her how it happened. And I knew when the Lord said that. I knew where the Lord was going with it. And so I asked her, I said, how did this happen? And she had shared with me that her husband, who is now deceased, uh, I, I had known him. He was a friend of mine. He had come out of a drug and alcohol background. Uh, we met around that lifestyle, uh, and he had gotten saved. But during a drug-induced drunk, uh, he had punched her in the eye, and she would lost the sight in her eye. She just had a little peripheral vision. And I said, have you forgiven him? She said, oh, Dave. She said, of course, I loved him. You know, he's with the Lord now. And I, I knew it was the drugs and alcohol. And that was a long time ago. He got right with God. And, and he, I, I forgave him. I said, well, why don't you just go ahead and say it out anyway? And I believe she was. In her heart, she was sincere. And she just said the words, I forgive. And she said her husband's name. And as soon as she did, she let out a squeal because her eyesight came instantly back. Now, it was amazing to me that here's a woman who consciously held no grudge against the man who had injured her eye. And she was, uh, you know, in her heart, she was saying with her mouth, I forgive him. 
But there was something about the authority of those words that, what, that just broke that final little hold. That spirit of infirmity had the right to afflict her and he had to let go and she was instantly healed. I've prayed for other people where they come in and, uh, you know, for prayer and they'll respond and we'll pray for them and I'll feel the power of God come upon them, but there's no movement. And if I don't have a word of knowledge about it and I don't have any light, this is always the first thing I'll go to. Is there anybody you need to forgive? Because often the, the most common thing is it's unforgiveness. And so I'll ask them. And, and uh, I've had people tell me, yeah, you know, I was, I remember one woman, she said, I'm bitter with my mother-in-law and my daughter. And she said it through gritted teeth, and I kind of felt like I needed to wipe my shirt off after she spit it out, you know. She was angry. And uh, I explained to her, well, you need to forgive. And she said, you don't know what they did to me. I said, you're right. And I'm, not, yeah, I'm thinking I'm not sure I'm interested either. It's going to be intense about it. But I tried to walk her through forgiveness, and uh, she just she said, I'm, I'm not willing to. There were two ladies in the same meeting that night with very similar situations, very similar ailments. Prayed for another. I told the lady, I said, you, you think about it and work through it, and I'll come back and I'll pray for you. There were hundreds of people there that night. When, uh, went, prayed for another woman, same thing. She was working through it, gritted teeth, and finally she said, I'll forgive. And uh, she did it through gritted teeth, but she was instantly healed. I mean, she didn't even seem that enthused about her forgiveness, okay? It wasn't like she was wanting to. It was like pulling, on her, you know, pulling it out of her. But she said it, and when she did, she was instantly healed. The other woman, I went back to her, and she said, I won't forgive. And I said, do you understand that your forgiveness, your healing is tied to your forgiveness? And you're going to walk out of here tonight with this ailment because it's direct. And now I don't go in on telling everybody that, but the Lord told me uh, what was going on. So I just told her and she just, she wasn't willing. She would, she would rather walk out with her ailment and her bitterness because she had the right in her mind to hold bitterness. I'm going to tell you that is contrary to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of resolved Issues. It is a, a kingdom where the counts are settled. Jesus went to the cross to settle accounts. That is how zealous God is about balancing the books in the kingdom. And so Jesus tells this parable, introducing it with that phrase. The kingdom is, is, is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Look at verse 24. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you, you get different, different things from different uh, scholars, but uh, uh, there's a group of scholars just came out with a new study Bible, and uh, I was looking this up again. I've looked it up over the years. This is, this is what it says about these, the, that, that amount of money. The servant owes roughly 150,000 years worth of wages, an ab absurdly insurmountable amount of debt intended to shock Jesus' listeners. Put it this way. The guy owned a boatload of money he was never going to be able to pay off. I want to remind you, he was a servant. And he owed this enormous, absurd amount of money. There is no way that he was going to be able to pay off. And Scripture says, specifically in verse 25, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children, with his wife and children, and that all that he had in payment be made. 
In that day and age, it wasn't uncommon for a person to be sold into servitude to pay off their debt, even their children. We see that in several passages, Old and New Testament. So the servant fell on his knees, verse 26, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. That's an astounding thing. Verse 25 says he could not pay. Verse 24, when it gives us the sum, we have to agree with verse 25. It's, it's, not, it's not saying he couldn't pay in that moment. The fact is this man would never be able to pay off the magnitude of his debt. We don't know how he got in that kind of debt, but he was, it was, he was like a, uh, you know, he had a, the equivalent like a national debt personally. And there's no way he's going to be able to pay this off. So the, ma the, the king is going to have him sold and the man makes this plea, give me time, be patient, give me time, and I will pay it off. And then we hear the master say, I'm going to forgive him of all that debt. One of the amazing things to me is this guy didn't simply ask for mercy, he asked for time. So he had miscalculated his earning power and the magnitude of his debt. There is no way those two things could be rectified. There's no way you could reconcile his ability to make money and the magnitude of his debt. He had overestimated his own ability to, do, to pay off his debt. And he had underestimated the size of his debt. Now, Jesus in this passage, obviously, is using financial debt as a metaphor for our sinfulness. It's, he's using money as a metaphor for our sin, that we went in debt. We were in the red. We needed forgiveness. That's what he's saying. And so this man, he had miscalculated his ability to live right. He, had, he was self-righteous. He attributed to his account more than he really had. He overestimated his own goodness. And he underestimated his own badness. He didn't realize the hole he had dug. He was seeing things incorrectly. But yet, because he humbled himself before the master, the master said, I'm going to wipe the whole debt out. That is the nature. Back in the 1850s, around that time, it was a tremendous move of God that swept the nation. Started out in New York and swept westward. Uh, there, at one point, there was one man that got on a train from the west and drove, rode the train to, to the east, and he said, every stop that I got off, he said, this nation is in one massive prayer meeting. It was called the Second Great Awakening. But one of the primary marks, aside from the prayer that birthed it, one of the other marks of that revival was the tremendously deep repentance that was going on in that revival. The leader of that revival, the primary voice of it, was a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a lawyer by training. And he was also... Uh, the choir director, and I think maybe even the youth leader at his Presbyterian church, but he wasn't saved, and he knew it. He knew he wasn't a believer. His pastor knew he wasn't a believer. And in fact, the whole church knew he wasn't a believer because he was pretty open about his unbelief. But yet it was a social thing, so he was part of the, the Presbyterian church. And one time, the church had been praying for Charles, and uh, he told him, you can quit your praying for me. 
And they were kind of shocked at his bluntness. And this is a precursor to how blunt he would be in his preaching, by the way, when he did get saved. He said, you don't need to bother praying for me because I know you don't believe your own prayers. I hear how you pray. He was kind of a blunt guy. I think they continued to pray because Charles began to be under conviction. And one day he came to the conclusion that I'm either going to get saved and go into the ministry or... I'm going to be the best lawyer the world has ever seen, and then I'll spend eternity in hell. And being a man that was a brilliant man, he kind of weighed the, weighed the options and thought, you know, I probably need to get right with God. So he took a Bible, and he marched out into the woods, because he was also a proud man, didn't want anybody to see him. And he marched out into the woods and knelt and down in the leaves, and he began to say, okay, God, I'm sorry for my sins, and I want to get right with you. And it was crickets. Probably literally, you know, he, I mean, there was no feeling. He didn't feel any, any movement, you know. He's like, okay, God, I'm, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have been so arrogant. And he was just busy trying to repent. He said, but my heart was dead. He said, I felt no, no engagement with heaven. And he began to be very concerned that, man, maybe I w waited too long. Maybe God has just hardened his heart towards me and, and there's, there's no redemption for me. And just about that time, he heard some crunching in the leaves and thought, somebody else must be out here. He jumped up because he was embarrassed that someone would see him kneeling in the woods. And he turned around, there was no one there. And all of a sudden, this severe conviction hit him and he realized, what an arrogant individual I am. Here I am out in the woods saying, God, forgive me a sinner but yet I was so prideful that I was worried some other sinner might see me kneeling before the God that I'm asking forgiveness for. And he was just smitten with conviction. He fell on his face and laid in the, the leaves and just cried out to God for uh, quite some time. He wasn't even sure how long he'd been out there, but it was several hours. And by the time he got up, he, he wasn't sure he was saved. But he was convinced of this, God is righteous, and whatever happens, he, he's, he's righteous, and he is fully, uh, you know, what, whatever he decides, he, did, he decides right. And he went back to his office, and he sat down in his chair, and uh, he, he had a little, I think a little fiddle, and he got it out, and he thought, I'm just going to begin to worship God, because God is worthy. And all of a sudden, he said, the Spirit of God fell on him. And he, this is the language he used. And gurgles of liquid love came out of my voice. And he said, I began to tell God, God, stop, lest you kill me. The guy got saved and baptized in the Spirit. And from then on, he was, he was a walking, talking, evangelistic meeting. Everywhere he went, people started getting saved right away. But he was born in deep repentance. And he would begin to uh, preach that same level of repentance, and there was a sweeping revival. And one of the reasons that revival was so effective is because the depth of repentance really did clean up. Uh, that matter of fact, there were, there were whole counties that dried up. The bars all closed down. A uh, hundred years later, Rochester, New York, was still being declared the friendliest city in the nation. And they would do these studies and they would gauge people's friendliness and they, secular surveyors would trace it to the revival under Charles Finney. But it was because of the depth of repentance. And in this passage, we have this man who seemingly is repentant. He, he falls on his knees and asks for mercy. But we see from what's coming out of his mouth, he really doesn't understand the depth of his own sin. 
and the lack of righteousness or earning power in his life. And we're going to see the fruit of that in a moment. So the master says to him, it says, uh, and out of pity for him, verse 27, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him about a hundred denarii. Now that's about three months wages. Now that's nothing to sneeze at. I don't know about you, but if someone robbed me of three months wages, I and my family would be in trouble. So Jesus isn't minimizing the things people have done towards us. But he is juxtapositioning that he's comparing it or contrasting it with the level of debt we had before the king to the level of debt people have towards us. He said he went out and found someone who owed him about three months wages and seizing him, he began to choke him. Do you see a problem here? <laughs> Saying, pay what you owe me. Can you imagine a guy who has just been forgiven a debt he could never pay off. He's walking down the street and it happens to run into a guy who owes him three months' debt and grabs him by the throat and begins to choke him. He didn't just say, hey, we need to talk. We need to figure out how we're going to pay, we're going to settle up on that. He grabs him by the throat and he's choking the guy. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar? The same thing he had said to the king, which elicited mercy from the king, he's now, is now being said to him, but look at his response. He refused and went in. He went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Went into debtor's prison. When his fellow servants would have saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, I imagine. Because there were fellow servants who knew the magnitude of debt that had just been relieved that he had been forgiven of and they went and reported it to their master all that had taken place then his master summoned him and said to him you wicked servant i forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had mercy and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as i had mercy on you and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he paid all his debt which was never so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now remember the context of this teaching. And this is Jesus himself telling his disciples. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from the heart. Jesus is comparing this to our relationship with him. I mean, the, the picture is undeniable. We came with a great debt. And when we cried out to God, God, even though we didn't realize the magnitude of our debt, God was willing to have mercy on us, and he forgave us of our debt. He wiped it out because the kingdom is a realm where God hates unfinished business. He wants to settle accounts. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses money to... Uh, symbolize our sin because debt never disappears somebody has to absorb the debt when people say well you know they just they just need to absorb that we we talk about well that company just needs to absorb you know that company they they need to forgive that debt or whatever hey debt in one sense is not forgiven it's paid for it's absorbed somebody it, it to balance the books somebody has to absorb it 
And that's what Jesus did for you and I. Somebody had to pay the debt. And God was willing to do that in his son. And so what Jesus is telling us is we have been forgiven so much, an amount we could never repay. So when somebody has sinned against us, we need to look through it through that lens. And again, Jesus is not minimizing the fact that there have been people who have hurt you. There are people who have violated us. But what he is saying is you've never been violated to the point that you've been the violator. You have never sinned against, you've never been sinned against to the magnitude that you have sinned against God. Because when we sinned against God, we were sinning against holiness. We were sinning against perfection. We were sinning against he whose nature is love and holiness. When people sin against us, that's a mixed bag. You look at Jesus on the cross. What does Jesus cry out? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, I kind of want to have an argument with Jesus. Because to me, they knew what they were doing. They knew they were physically torturing him. They saw how he acted throughout his crucifixion. They saw the heart and the attitude. In fact, so much so that one of the unbelieving thieves was converted during the crucifixion. How did that happen? I guarantee you the way it happened is that as they're being tortured, as they're being whipped, as they're being forced to carry their own cross, as they're thrown upon the ground and the, the other two thieves are screaming and cursing and fighting the guards, Jesus says, no man takes my life, freely I give it. And he laid his hand on the post. As they pounded him, he would hear him say things like, John, take care of, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. John, take care of my mother. He watched how everything coming out of his mouth was concern for other people. And watching how he walked through this thing, it was undeniable to one of those thieves that this man is the son of God. So it's an awesome thing when you look at the dialogue taking place on Mount Calvary. One of the thieves is cursing Jesus, and as he is dying, so there was such a lack of the fear of the Lord. He was on the threshold of eternity, and he's mocking Jesus. Can you believe that? In his last, with his last breath, he is mocking Jesus, and the other thief leans over and says, Dude, don't you fear God? For this, we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Listen to what he said. He was calculating his own debt, and he realized, I deserve this. I deserve this cross. But I've watched how this man has walked through this and interacted with his tormentors, and he has done nothing wrong. And with that, Jesus says to him, he said, brother, we, you, we will be with you, we'll be together today in paradise. It's an amazing thing that of all the people, the theologians, the church crowd, you know, the, the Roman soldiers, all that crowd, and the one who gets the revelation, even the disciples who had walked with them, they're thinking, oh, this is not good. The one person who understood what was going on, that this man was the sinless son of God, was this thief. It's an amazing thing. 
He was, he was calculating his debt, and he saw it for what it was. But this man, this unmerciful servant, he was blind to the magnitude of his own debt. So here's the point. Unforgiveness. When we hold resentment and unforgiveness towards another human being, the root of the issue is a wrong view of our own sinfulness. It's you do not realize the depth of your own sin. It's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. When you are self-righteous, in turn, it's easy to be very unmerciful with other people. Again, I mentioned how Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrong. The love of God which we receive and begins to emanate from us. One of the primary manifestations of love is that we don't keep record of wrong. We don't, we don't hold grudges. We don't have it on the books. We're willing to write that debt off and absorb it. I'll just take it out of my own account and balance that scale. I'm willing to absorb this. I'm going to forgive. There, I'm going to let them go. That is an expression of the love of God. It's the nature of the kingdom because the kingdom is like a king who set out to settle accounts with his servants. And he clearly expected his servants to do the same. So when we see our own sin incorrectly, it's very easy to be harsh and unforgiving towards others. And so if you're struggling with unforgiveness, as we said earlier, psychosomatic illness is not just something in your imagination. Your body can be at dis-ease with your soul. That your body is absorbing and your body is rebelling and breaking down because of something you're carrying in your soul you were never intended to carry. So it can affect your body. It'll affect your relationships. Paul, or whoever, uh, whoever wrote Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. He's, it says... Uh, it talks about don't allow, don't allow roots of bitterness to defile many. It's an interesting phrase, roots of bitterness. It's an interesting picture. All the water that was drawn from that well would have this bitter taste. A bitter root will defile many. The fact is, if you have unforgiveness in your life, you cannot contain that. It's not, well, I'm just going to keep this root and guard this. That root will get into your water system, and everybody that drinks from your well, everybody that interacts with you is going to begin to taste that bitterness. Because bitterness will begin to infect everything. It'll give you a cynical attitude. You'll begin to see other people through that lens. Because at its root is self-righteousness. You think you're better than you are. And therefore, you're going to treat people that, like they're worse than you, you, you are. But when you begin to see yourself for what you really are, you begin to have a lot of mercy with others. You'll be like Jesus and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, Jesus understood that sin blinds. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the instigators behind this kangaroo court he had been railroaded to Calvary through, 
They were the people who should have understood the best. But yet Jesus emanated mercy and said, Lord, forgive them. They're laughing in his face. And he's, he cries out and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they do. Because he understood that sin blinds people. And he was willing to give them that room, give them that mercy. It's about three years ago, I was working through my feelings towards a couple of people. And uh, the Lord, in a prayer meeting, really put his finger on me. And he said, Dave, you're judging them as if they understand what you understand right now. You understand this principle and you're, you're frustrated with them because they violated this principle and you're treating them as though they understand this, but they, un they don't understand what they're doing. And if you can interact with them out of that, it's going to be a whole lot easier for you. I was imposing, you know, the enemy is very happy to give you light to allow you to see clearly a scriptural principle if it's going to make you bitter with someone else over it. He's very willing for you to have a real clear understanding on a scriptural principle if he can leverage it in your bitterness towards someone else and you hold them that, to that standard. But what needs to happen? The key for this servant would have been to realize the magnitude of his own debt. He was deluded. Paul says two times in two of his epistles, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, they were both written at the same time from a prison cell. He had been imprisoned for his faith. The, 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 uh, the Jewish leaders had been pursuing him, and uh, they, were, they were trying to get him uh, you know, imprisoned and executed. And Paul would write this in both of those letters, these prison epistles, this phrase, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I'm not so sure that Paul wasn't just summarizing this whole parable by that one little phrase in both of those books. Forgive one another as God in Christ hath forgiven you. In other words, the only thing God's asking of you this morning is that you forgive to the extent that you've been forgiven. And if you f still feel justified in holding your unforgiveness, then it's because you are deluded like the unmerciful servant. You don't realize the magnitude of your own debt. And because of that, because you are blinded about yourself, then it's become very easy for you to be unmerciful with other people. If you are struggling with unforgiveness, and I don't want to minimize for anybody. I know there are people, I've counseled with people that you wouldn't believe the stories I've heard, and possibly you have one of them. People that have gone through tremendous abuse. But the fact is, the secret to letting go of that is to see your own sin. To go before the Lord and say, God, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling with letting go of this. And so I know I'm blinded about myself. I know you've forgiven me more than I could ever forgive. So Lord, I'm asking you, open the eyes of my understanding. Help me to see what you've done for me. Because when you realize the magnitude of what God has done for you, it's real easy to begin to be merciful with others. That's why scripture says, 
He who has forgiven much, what? Loves much. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. One of the primary sources or catalysts for love to be birthed in your heart is the gratitude you feel when you've been forgiven. When you realize, oh my goodness, my debt has been erased. I thought I would be a slave for the rest of my life and all of a sudden I'm in good standing. And there's love that begins to be birthed in our heart. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Why? Again, one of the manifestations of love is it keeps no record of wrong. You will keep no record of wrong if you love much. And the secret to loving much is realizing the magnitude of forgiveness that has been extended to you. I used to have a Bible school professor who used to say this. He'd say, every now and then, it's good to walk through a sanctified hall of shame and remember from whence you came. Not in some condemnation. I look back, you, you've heard me many times talk about where I came from. I was a homeless alcoholic, lived on the streets. I was a mess. I was a mess. I don't, when I talk about that, I don't feel shame and, oh, you know, it's embarrassing. People have said, oh, man, I can't believe you're so open about your past. Well, because I, I know that's not me. I'm not, I'm not embarrassed about it. That guy's dead. <laughs> I've been delivered from God did the world a favor when he crucified me on the cross and I'm free from him. But I tell you what it does do. It makes me grateful. Because I remember the times when I was just in a drunken stupor and I would, I would feel so desperate and think, can I ever get free? I, inpatient, outpatient, outpatient, NA, AA, and abuse, all those things. And I could not stop using it. And I would, in a drunken stupor, I would write a note to myself, you've got to get help. And I'd stick it in my pocket. And a couple days later, I'd wake up somewhere hungover and I'd pull that note out and think, what is that? And I think, I, I wrote that to myself. And it just felt like there was no way I could reach over that line and find freedom. It seemed like it was a, uh, there, there was a chasm that I could never bridge. And the day I got saved, it's like I stepped over the line and it was gone. And I'm like, why didn't I do this before? It was so easy. Just receive the gift. When I think back at those times and put myself back in that place, not out of shame and condemnation, but out of gratitude and remember how lost I was, I tell you what, it's pretty hard to, to hold someone else's feet to the fire. It's pretty hard to get self-righteous and say, I can't believe they did this. Boy, you wouldn't believe the things I did. There are some things I don't talk about. God has forgiven us. Forgive one another as God in Christ hath forgiven you. This is all God's asking for. Give what you've been given. And if you don't think you received enough to give to cancel the debt, you just need to go back and ask God, let's look at the books again to see what you paid off on my account. And it'll birth within you mercy. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask, God, that you, by your spirit, what you did for Charles Finney in the woods that day, where you released to him conviction, Lord, I ask that you would release it to us. 
Lord, if there's anybody that we're holding bitterness and unforgiveness against, Lord, if there's somebody that when their name comes up, it's like there's a grinding feeling and a, a sense of, of justice that we want to visit upon them. Lord, I'm asking, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Don't let sin against us produce sin in us, Lord. We don't want to produce in us, Lord. So grant us the grace to forgive others. Now I want to encourage you to do business with the Lord. Forgiveness often starts with a decision. It's not a feeling. It's a decision to say, you know what, Lord, I know I've been forgiven much. Jesus is clear. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. Now, people can try to wiggle their, themselves around that thing, but it's clear. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. In this passage, the former debt was placed back upon him. You can get back under the same load of sin you once lived under. Begin to live under that, live under that same imprisoned state because you opened the door through unforgiveness. So if that's you, I want to encourage you, release forgiveness. Let them go. Write it off. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and let's just close with one song and we're going to worship the Lord. Let me just leave you with this as they're coming. There are those who... There, there's a step beyond what we're talking about, okay? You can stay and say, I demand... I'm going to be the vigilante. I demand the right to be judge and jury and I'm going to carry the justice. I'm going to execute the justice on those who have hurt me. That is contrary to the kingdom. That is the kingdom of darkness. God knows nothing about that. That, that is not, that's not how Jesus rolls, okay? You need to repent and come into the light. What we talked about this morning is we're going to forgive. See, when we hold when we hold the keys to justice and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get vengeance, God withdraws from the case and says, if that's how you want to do it, you're on your own. But if you say, Lord, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to put them in your hands, Lord. I, 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 don't, I don't want that anymore. I, I want to forgive. Then God steps in as judge. He picks up the case as prosecutor and he'll begin to deal with that heart. But what happens is we can get in the way of God dealing with those who are abusers. We can actually keep them from the very dealings of God that they need because we have inserted ourselves as the judge in that situation. So forgive. I'm telling you, there's something beyond that. And that is, this is where the kingdom really is, over here. Where you say, I'm no longer going to be the prosecuting attorney. I'm going to be the defense attorney. And I'm going to go before the judge of all the earth in intercession and I'm going to ask for forgiveness for that person because I really realize they're in danger. They know not what they do. And so the, the person who was my abuser, I'm going to now begin to pray, God, open their eyes, not so that they can, not, not in some vindictive way, but God, deliver them. That is the kingdom where the person who was once a victim becomes the prosecuting, I mean the defense attorney and say, I'm going to defend them. I'm going to go before the throne and pray on their behalf. That's where God wants to take us. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.